Our, um, we are perhaps smaller in attendance today. I think the House staff continues on their holiday break. I hope everyone had a, a good holiday break um, and is back for, for action. Uh, back for action. Um, a brief story to share over the holiday break on um, end of December, it, there was a very fortunate outcome um, at a basketball game up at the Lime School in that associate provider from the PICU, Madonna Gordon, was in attendance when an 11-year-old had a, a collapse, a sudden cardiac event. And thanks to quick application of an AED and CPR by Madonna and others, um, that child had a very good outcome. So outside of our walls, people doing excellent work. Um, if you see Madonna at some point, uh, a nice kudos. And uh, the team and the PICU, of course, continue the work. So happy new year on that note. And um, it's my pleasure to welcome, I think for the first time at Grand Rounds, but he's been a member of our faculty now for over a year. Reto Bartscheiger is uh, presenting Grand Rounds today. Dr. Bartscheiger is a graduate of, um, I think, University of Lausanne and University of Geneva in Switzerland for his MD degree, followed by an intern year in pediatric surgery at the University Hospital in Geneva, and a PhD prior to conducting his residency in Indiana and fellowship in pediatric surgery at Riley Hospital for Children in the Department of Surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's been with us a bit more than a year and a half since August 15, 2015. He's been assistant professor of surgery at the Geisel School of Medicine and the director of the pediatric trauma program here at CHAD. Uh, Reto is um, in our... Um, author of over 25 original peer-reviewed uh, articles in a variety of literature with a significant focus on xenotransplantation. He's been a member of the editorial board of Xeno, Xenotransplantation since 2006, as well as the editorial board of the World Journal of Transplantation since 2011. He's, he's not talking about transplantation today. Maybe we'll get him up here again at some point about transplantation, or maybe that's for the Department of Surgery. Um, but before leaving Indiana, uh, Reto was also elected to Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society uh, before joining us here with his lovely family. So welcome to kick off the year, Dr. Bartscheiger. Good morning. I don't bite. I'm a surgeon, but if some people want to come closer. Sorry. So thank you for having me here to talk about um, pediatric surgical oncology and two tumors that um, we share with our uh, pediatric oncologist and who uh, surgeons intervene uh, quite frequently. And just for to echo Keith's um, uh, comment on transplantation. My initial research was in transplantation for four years, and if I was single, I would have done a fellowship in transplant after pediatric surgery. <laughs> My government at home said no, and so uh, I have three kids, so uh, they take some time away too, and it's fun. So I have nothing to disclose. Just for 2017, I think it's an interesting uh, question. Or unanswered questions are far less dangerous than unquestioned answers, and. We'll see what happens on January 20th about that. Um, so the objectives of this talk is I'm going to talk about the current biology on neuroblastoma and Wilms tumors. And again, these are two solid tumors where uh, the surgeons are involved uh, most frequently. Um, cancer biology and uh, oncology has moved more towards risk stratification and risk status. Um, and the children's, um, like the children's oncology group and different international societies have actually worked uh, at the front edge of, of these uh, risk stratifications, uh, even before our adult colleagues. And then I'll talk briefly about the surgical management and the medical approaches in the treatment of both of these tumor groups. <clears throat> Again, brief introduction on general um, cancer epidemiology to uh, tell you where these two tumors lay in, uh, in the big uh, cancer picture, then talk about neuroblastoma, Wilms tumors, and then uh, some conclusions. So, if you look at uh, the epidemiology of cancer, um, you'll see that obviously leukemias and, um, and um, brain tumors and spine tumors are the most frequent in our pediatric population, but the neuroblastoma and renal tumors are pretty frequent as well. Uh, my 
specific interests in liver tumors, and I might talk about that next year, but they're much more uh, less frequent or less frequent. Uh, again, here you can see that compared to leukemias and lymphomas in our pediatric population, the incidence of uh, neuroblastomas and Wilms tumors are much less frequent, with uh, uh, neuroblastomas being the most frequent solid tumor in, uh, in the younger age group there. So, obviously this is a big, big tumor in the abdomen pushing the kidney away, and that's what I'm going to talk uh, about in the first half hour uh, this morning. So, a little bit of developmental biology and embryology. Uh, pediatric surgeons love that. And so, uh, basically, um, where do neuroblastomas come from? They come from cells that are uh, derived from the neural crest. And uh, these neural crest cells, they migrate all across the body and make Schwann cells, adrenal uh, chromaffin cells, and melanocytes. And these are the cells that eventually will degenerate and cause neuroblastoma. Again, I'm not going to go into details of the cancer biology with uh, migration metastasis, but uh, these cells migrate throughout the entire body, and because they migrate on the neural crest, you can find these tumors basically on the neural crest from the, or the, the cervical spine all the way down into uh, the um, organ of candle in the, in the abdomen at, uh, at the level of the adrenal glands. Sorry, there. So you have them, all these neural crest tumors, as you said, it, you can find them in the medullary. Again, ganglion neuromas, more in the spine, or also neuroblastomas in younger kids, neuroblastomas of the adrenal glands. And then we're missing here the organ of Zucker candle, which is in the abdomen. Um, always good to know uh, for board questions. Um, these neural crest uh, uh, derived tumors. Uh, also par are part of some uh, syndromes, MEN uh, 1 and 2. Again, neuroblastomas are, uh, can be in the chest, in the abdomen, uh, or more generalized. Again, as I said, it's the most frequent extra um, at a neurosurgical tumor in uh, children. It represents 10% of all solid tumors in children and uh, is actually associated with a higher uh, death rate, uh, unfortunately. One in 7,500 to 10,000 children. There's 700 new cases in the U.S. a year, uh, approximately. Uh, we have between two and three, I think, a year uh, here at CHAD. Uh, it's more common in boys than in girls. And uh, it's one of the most frequently diagnosed malignancy in a child be uh, below, the, below one year of age. And interestingly, they can, also, can actually also present prenatally in utero. We get quite a bit of uh, consultations where on the ultrasound, the uh, uh, obstetricians diagnosed an adrenal mass, and then there's a, always a big question, what should we do? Should we watch? Should we monitor? Should we operate? And I think I'll go into that answer uh, during my talk. Again, anatomical location everywhere on the neural crest-derived tissue, uh, most frequently the adrenal gl gland, then you can have it in the paraspinal tissue along the sympathetic cord, in the mediastinum, that can cause significant uh, airway compression, in the neck and the pelvis less frequently. They can ob obviously follow three pathways, uh, spontaneous regression and uh, differentiation. Um, so the spontaneous regression, there some tumors that are seen in utero suddenly disappear, and we don't know why. Uh, maturation, differentiation to glandular neuromas, so, um, and that can happen anywhere, but it's very frequently seen in the chest. Uh, you have a tumor that has been growing and suddenly stops and matures. And again, uh, there's research going on to understand why and to see if we can actually intervene in a similar way to uh, prevent the rapid progression in uh, more malignant and aggressive tumors. Because the last category is the one that uh, obviously patients do very poorly. How do they present? And I think uh, talking to pediatricians there, they're always, they present in many different ways, but the most frequent uh, presentation for an abdominal uh, tumor is a big mass. And then they can have bone pain, skin lesion. Sometimes they just present with a little bump under the skin. That's usually bluish. Um, they can be anemic if there's bone marrow involvement. They can have some ecchymosis. Uh, raccoon's eyes, I'll show you a picture of that. Or another interesting factor of neuroblastoma 
when they have when they come in with opsoclonus, myoclonus, and it's thought that there is a cross-reactivity of antibodies with uh, the um, cerebellum. Uh, they can have weight loss, fever, Horner syndrome if you have a neck involvement, and hypertension because they can make some uh, dopamine-derived um, metabolites. So basically, they can present in very, very different ways. And depending on where the tumor is, you would present with different symptoms. And uh, again, when something doesn't feel right, always keep neuroblastoma in mind. Raccoon's eyes on that child with uh, infiltration of the uh, ocular fossa. A big, big mass in the, in the abdomen. Here, compressing basically your uh, left renal outflow. They can have constipation, uh, bloating, um, they should be palpable. A mass, a big mass in the chest. So basically, you have the heart, a big mass compressing. You can't almost not see the airway. And so a big mass in the retro, uh, mediast- in the posterior mediastinum. They can have extension where the little arrows are. You have extension into the spinal canal, so they can come in paralyzed um, or at least have some neurological symptoms. So always remember that neuroblastoma can present with multiple, multiple different symptoms. How do we work them up? So as everything in our profession, sorry, H&P. Ask for symptoms, how long they've been going on. And then once you have a suspicion of a mass, we usually start with an ultrasound just to, because it's no radiation and um, it can give you some information. Most of the neuroblastomas will get either a CT scan or an MRI nowadays. And then to measure the extent of the disease and the bone uh, marrow and the cortical bone involvement, you need a bone scan and an MIBG scan to localize the primary tissue or tumor. Then uh, from a more biological workup to make the diagnosis you want, um, the urinary catecholamine, so HMA, VMA, again, for the resident that will likely come out on your boards, uh, serum ferritin and LDH are also diagnostic uh, values because they are um, involved in uh, prognosis. And then you have your diagnosis. But then at least it's imaging and biological diagnosis. What you need is also a biopsy. And if you have localized disease, so non-metastatic, uh, some of these lesions can actually be primary uh, excised. Uh, if you have an adrenal tumor alone, you can do an adrenalectomy and then also bone marrow aspiration to make sure that there's no bone marrow involvement. If the uh, lesions are metastatic uh, in the bone uh, or anywhere else, you can't really resect, so we would do a biopsy, a bone marrow aspiration again to um, look for bone marrow involvement, and then we place a line to get treatment on board. As I said, we mentioned earlier, and now these tumors are uh, defined by risk stratification, and uh, the risk stratification is uh, basically a part of what, can, what is going to influence our outcome. And so age in these patients is a direct uh, influence of outcome, and obviously then risk. The younger the patient, the better the outcome. Stage, and I'm going to go through a little of... Uh, oncological history here because there's uh, different types of staging and it might become a little confused, but I will tell you at the end what we use today. Uh, But there's an international neuroblastoma staging system. Then histopathology, um, where um, we have favorable versus unfavorable histology. And then multiple different biological variables. So uh, most of us remember MICAN amplification uh, is usually associated with bad outcomes, ploidy, where um, uh, normal ploidy is also uh, acid with bad outcome, and then some deletions and gains of chromosomes uh, affect uh, outcome directly. And then uh, more recently, uh, an international risk factor uh, uh, used to now define risk status, uh, risk status from low, very low risk to high risk, and um, you'll see a nice picture of that at the end. So that's uh, just a survival curve. Uh, event-free survival on patients uh, between 74 and 2002, uh, where age was uh, included. So 0 to 12 months of age, 12 to 18 months of age, and above 18 months of age. And that's all stages uh, together. So obviously the older, the worse they do. And just that's 50% survival. So older than 18 months of age, 
between these 30 years, a 30% survival only. Just, again, just to be thorough, so the International Neuroblastoma Staging System from stage 1 to stage 4S, where you have a localized tumor just to the adrenal or to one site, 2A, that can be excised, sorry, 2A, this is a localized stage without lymph node involvement, with lymph, with lymph node involvement without complete resection. Here it crosses the midline, and here 4 is metastatic. 4S is a special sorry, is a special uh, subpopulation uh, of uh, neuroblastomas uh, in kids that are younger than 18 months of age with significant disease burden, only 10% involvement of the bone marrow, but they're younger and they do much better and we don't really biologically understand why. But they're a subgroup of generalized disease who actually does better, which is contra well, it's counterintuitive, but they actually do pretty well. This is stage uh, survival, uh, depending on the stage. And you can, again, see here the 4S is this little line. And so they have a five-year, uh, like if you go even 10-year, survival of 75%, whereas the 4, which was our metastatic uh, population, do very poorly. And again, we haven't made much progress on these kids in the last 25 years, which is very frustrating. And I think better understanding the biology of these tumors will hopefully help uh, to change that. But in the last 30 years, there's still significant uh, mortality. Again, here, just for, to be thorough, 4S. And I wrote 12 months here. It switched recently to 18 months, but some textbooks and some articles vary between 12 and 18 months all the time. But it's uh, 18 months now, sorry about that. And the liver is involved, subcutaneous metastases that are usually what makes the diagnosis. You need 10, less than 10% of bone marrow involvement, and uh, you don't need to uh, resect uh, the primary tumor. Uh, and most of them actually can observe and they get better. Again, it's hard to observe for a neuroblastoma patient. You want to treat them, but uh, sometimes observation actually helps. Meek and amplification. So this is all comers, uh, the entire cohort on, on that uh, article. You can see it's statistically significant, but it's a small difference. Um, um, and so this is event-free survival, overall survival. Here you have a improved survival between the tumors that are not M, N, sorry, MIC N amplified, whereas the ones that are amplified uh, do worse. But if you look at tumors that uh, are poor responders to chemotherapy, your gap gets even better, uh, worse, sorry, bigger, with very poor uh, event-free survival and overall survival. So again, the patients with MIC N amplification, with it, it's an oncogene, they do very poorly, whereas the ones that are, have different biology, they do better. So uh, MECAN is directly associated with a risk stratification because of, of these difference in outcomes. Now, as a surgeon, obviously I, I'm interested in performing surgery and cutting out the tumors. Um, it's a very simplistic way, but um, what, um, when we look at uh, a patient and we look at um, doing a biopsy or doing a resection, we we'll always look, is it resectable or not? And so um, we look at the extent of disease. But if you look in, the, in the, um, a tumor in the chest or in the abdomen, we need to see if that tumor can come off big danger zones here, basically arteries and, and veins and neuroblastomas usually encase vessels. And so, for example, here, these tumors that are not encasing would have no image-derived risk factors, whereas on the right side, you can see that obviously if you have major vessel encasement, you can't resect them. So this would be non-resectable, obviously. And how this looks in, in reality is like that. So obviously if you have a big tumor that's around your celiac trunk here or in the liver, you, can obviously, you cannot take that tumor out. So uh, that tumor would have uh, image-derived risk factors. Again, uh, a coronal view, like around the portal vein, obviously you need that. Or here, um, around the SMA, you can't resect that. And so these tumors 
you will, will biopsy, get the cytogenetics, risk stratification, give chemo, and then see if at the later stage they are resectable. And now the, <clears throat> not to confuse you, but that's the now current and final staging system that uses this uh, image-derived um, risk factor. Basically, an L1, L2M, and MS stage, which this is basically corresponds to um, the 4S tumors. But L1 is when you have no or absence of image-derived risk factors. And there's one body compartment, non-metastatic. L2 is you have presence of these risk factors, so they're not immediately resectable. And the M is obviously metastatic, except no 4S. So it has been developed in 2008 and 2009. And um, I'm just going to stop here, because I think that's, from an oncological perspective, something that is very well illustrated. and. Um, I think if you understand that tree, you, underst you will understand the risk stratification uh, of tumors. And I think most, and I hope most of our uh, future uh, cancers will be using a tree like that or another diagram where you can basically start with a tumor. You have either that's a maturing uh, ganglion neuroma, so it puts you into class A. And I'll talk about all these classes, all these leaves in a, in a minute. But basically, you start here you have these image-derived risk factors, and L1 is a tumor that's localized. You have no MIC-N amplification. You are in group B, which is going to be very low risk. Okay? If you have bio bad biology, puts you in red, is going to be a high risk. And then you can follow all these uh, branches, and it puts you into a risk group, and these risk groups will be treated differently depending on, again, on your biology. You can see anatomy and extensive extension of disease is important, but then you switch right away to biology or age, which are all part of now the risk stratification. And so uh, I think it's, it's a, a tremendous work that has been put into that, but it's very useful for the clinician, but also just to understand how we're moving towards uh, implementing the biology in the, 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 the treatment of cancer. I know for hepatoblastoma, for example, we're using a similar approach now, uh, and uh, in the future trials, all patients will be basically grouped into different risk uh, uh, groups again uh, for that. So this is similar way, less nice, but it's a, a big table where you have, again, the stage that's from tumor extension, age, the histological categories. I think that's probably going to be disappear in the future. But then, again, uh, the ploidy and the MECAN amplification, very important. And so that brings us here. The colors, I'm just going to go back, sorry. The colors on the groups here, on the leaves, correspond directly to your risk group. So very low risks, groups A, B, and Cs. The predictive uh, five-year survival is very good and it's a quarter of the patient. Low risk, again, you, that, these are the letters on the leaves with um, a five-year survival. That's not as good, but still three quarters. And then, obviously, the high-risk patients who are a third or even more than a third of our patients and have a bad prognosis. So how do we treat them? And I'm not going to go into too many details because some of the protocols are very complex. I think I will defer to Dr. Van Hoff, Chaffee, and Kim for the detailed protocols if you're interested. Uh, but basically for the low-risk population, if you get full resection, surgery alone usually works. Intermediate risk, obviously resect or biopsy, depending on the extensive, uh, extensive of, extent of the disease, and then uh, pretty intensive chemotherapy. The high risk, so you need surgery for a biopsy most of the time. If you can resect, you will, but uh, uh, the biology will also. So surgery, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, or pre-resection therapy, and then after um, uh, your resection, you continue with uh, chemotherapy. They get radiated and uh, myeloblation with stem cell transplantation, and then a maturing uh, uh, vitamin A derivative, 
and then immunotherapy with its own um, risks associated with that. But it's very, very intensive uh, therapy for the high-risk population. Again, the treatment for surgery is to remove all the visible tumor. It, it needs to at least be 95%. It's hard to get all these tumors out because they infiltrate the tissues, and um, you try to take everything out, but you don't have to. There's still some controversy whether full resection, which I mean R0 is basically taking everything out versus 95% has a, an effect on survival. There's a, a Dutch group that states that you should take every, everything out, even uh, if uh, you have to uh, be more aggressive. And by more aggressive, I uh, mean by taking another organ out, and that's controversial. I think the problem is if uh, you have to uh, do a nephrectomy for, well, uh, for a neuroblastoma because the, the tumor is invading the kidney, uh, it's uh, hard to then uh, bring them through stem cell transplantation because they need a normal, as normal as possible of a kidney function to, uh, to uh, go through um, the intensive chemotherapy and stem cell transplantation. So neuroblastoma, it's the most frequent solid tumor in kids outside of the brain. We haven't done much progress in the last 30 years, even though we are using intensive chemotherapy, and we are actually better understanding the biology much better, especially uh, the risk uh, factors that are associated with bad outcomes. But unfortunately, we can't really interfere with MIKAN amplification uh, after diagnosis. Again, the biology, 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 and age and image-defined risk factors will uh, uh, define how we treat these tumors. And I think it's from a medical but also surgical perspective, it's very interesting to see the whole evolution from stage one, two, three, four, four S to now that tree that I think is a very nice image on how we stage and uh, classify these patients depending on that disease. Any questions on neuroblastoma? <coughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna move, switch gears to Wilms, that's why, and it's a different disease, so. To see if you go back to the prenatal ultrasound findings, because I'm thinking about all the old stories on how screening for this tumor is not good, and is now ultrasound the new screening that is not useful, because working in the nursery, there's lots of findings. I look at lots of ultrasounds now, and there are lots of findings, most of which are not very useful for me. So I don't think we have level one data telling you what you should do. I know that Japan, for example, did screenings uh, with HMA and VMA in all their babies born. I think it was in the in the 90s, and um, they did a lot of ultrasound, a lot of operations on uh, patients with elevated HMA and VMAs, and it did not change any long-term survival or outcomes. And so I think if you find an ultrasound, on ultrasound, on prenatal ultrasound, an abdominal lesion, I would repeat an ultrasound at birth, and then at the month, two months. Uh, there's a couple of patients we're following, but I think it's not radiating um, and I think I would prefer to be safe than then find an enlarging tumor, because if it's enlarging, then I would intervene. Again, I think it's hard to find level one data to support anything, because we don't know. So on your earlier classification system, 4S, you said observation is often the best approach. Mm -hmm. Can you be more specific about what you mean by observation? Do you mean observation? <laughs> <laughs> I might ask some help from Sarah up there, but um, it's hard to observe. Uh, but I think they usually get better by themselves, yes. But it depends on if you have a very, very large liver that interferes with your respiratory status, and that can happen if uh, you, you might want to treat. But again, I'll, I'll let Dr. Chaffee uh, maybe comment on that, because for a surgeon, it's hard to watch. Is if there if there are life-threatening complications with the tumor
I think Japan is stuff. They were doing it in Quebec when one of my daughters was born. She got screened, uh, and um, they 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 stopped that because we were discovering the tumors that didn't need treatment. So we were feeling so good, a surgeon's taken out these tumors, and it didn't change the incidence of the advanced stage neuroblastoma one bit. So we took out tumors that probably would have gone away anyway. Yeah, so there was a very uh, kind of elegant controlled trial that was done between the U.S. and Canada, and they took the Delaware Valley region as a control region, which was not screened, in the province of Quebec, which was universally screened, and they um, uh, treated according to the same protocols and guidelines. Um, and it, although the incidence of neuroblastoma was elevated in the area that were screened, the mortality rate from neuroblastoma was no different in the two groups. So the conclusion really since then has been that we don't do birth screening. There have been um, some places where they say, well, you're screening at the wrong age because if you screen at birth, you're finding just the benign ones, you should screen at six months or at 12 months or at a later age, um, but it really hasn't, uh, there's been no evidence that screening will reduce the mortality rate from neuroblastoma. But if you find a mass on the prenatal ultrasound, I think you'd, I would follow them. You don't have to screen, but if you find, right, Jack, or am I, you yeah, would not, because we have a couple patients like that together. So. There are specific guidelines where um, if the, you know, based on the size of the mass, how soon you look again, mm -hmm. and if it's changing at a certain rate, there are, you know, not randomized controlled trials, but there are reasonable guidelines that have been worked out. There's a lot of data. Um, uh, just another comment is that, you know, you see, this is a tumor that has 700 cases a year in the United States, and um, there are 16 different groups. So it's really, even though when you collapse those 16 groups into four, kind of super groups and try and do clinical trials that way, it's, it's, it's very uh, difficult. It takes the whole country plus in order to do any clinical study. Yes, but I, I would add that the Children's Oncology Group is, I think, one of the leaders in like clinical research and sharing protocols and sharing data compared to a lot of other things we do uh, in surgery, probably in pediatrics as well, where uh, I think again, neonatology is uh, also sharing everything, and we have uh, big names in this room today uh, for that. But I think the Children's Oncology Group uh, early on shared their protocols, shared their data, and uh, I think it's very important. And our adult colleagues actually look at us uh, um, in a very jealous way because there's not much sharing at that level in the adult side. So I think that's very good. So here's an easy question. What's the next, what's going to happen in the next 30 years? I mean, is it, or another way of asking it, is it, is it this very diversity in these tumors that makes uh, uh, progress so difficult? I think it's a very good question. I think we're going to probably go more towards immunotherapy and tumor-based uh, targeted therapies. Uh, again, antibodies versus other um, uh, uh, trends like transduction uh, proteins or targeted uh, specific uh, molecules. The problem is some of these molecules are ubiquitous, so the side effects come with it. But I think uh, hopefully we'll go more towards a targeted approach, like for uh, melanomas, they're doing it in the adult population. But again, it's, research is on full speed, but I think it's hard to to predict. I think immunotherapy will hopefully work with its, its risks. All right, renal tumors. Um, so I'm going to talk now about uh, Wilms tumors and uh, other renal tumors. Um, again, he, we see uh, two or three a year here at Chan, and this is all the subfamilies of all the different types of kidney tumors that we can find. The most frequent is Wilms tumors that I'll talk more extensively about, and then the rare tumors that are even uh, less, uh, that probably have five to 10 cases a year in the, in, the, in the country. Again, some embryology, and just it's how the kidney is formed. I'm not gonna go into details of molecular embryology here today, but you have early on these genes get activated in 
uh, renal development. And then they're also active in, obviously, tumor biology and unwound tumor. Again, these two molecules are important that you will see uh, down the road uh, for uh, worm tumor or nephroblastoma. Again, different molecules, and that's, uh, if you want to read the very interesting articles about how the different tumors were uh, found out and what uh, activation of which genes, again, you lose with uh, the Wilms tumor one, and actually I didn't know that until this morning. Our dean of the medical school was his PhD work was on sequencing and uh, isolating the Wilms tumor one. So uh, he told me that this morning. We had a meeting with with him, um, and then Wnt activation, and you have different subtypes of tumor that have different markers. And I think it will again. Uh, Wilms tumors are not there yet, but it will future, uh, it will um, stratify our tumors in the future. But then more to the clinical stuff. So it's the second most common abdominal tumor uh, after neuroblastoma. It's 6% of all our uh, uh, solid tumors. It's one in 10,000 in the general population, and we have between five and 550 new cases a year in the country. Uh, it's more frequent in the, American Af in the African American population, and it's uh, in, mostly in little older kids. Uh, uh, three years to three to five years of age. Um, it can be unilateral versus bilateral, and the bilateral tumors are more associated with uh, syndromes. As I mentioned here, also back with Wiedemann is one of the common syndromes that are associated with Wilms tumors and hepatoblastoma, Wagner, Dennis, Drash, and Perlman syndromes. Here's just a picture with uh, a little boy who has uh, back with Wiedemann macroglossia, hemihypertrophy. Um, sorry. And um, you have to screen these kids when they present with these syndromes and repeat ultrasounds on the liver and uh, kidneys to uh, detect their tumors early. Wilms tumors have different histology, and that's just basically his, uh, to show you some pictures, uh, the epithelial, stromal, mixed, blastemal, and anaplastic. Obviously, anaplastic is the worst, it's the most aggressive. Uh, the epithelial tumors, they basically try to retrace the um, embryology of the kidney where they make some of the tubules. Uh, the stromal tissue of the, of the kidney can be involved here on the right. Um, and you can have both mixed epithelial stromal or blastemal uh, tumors. And um, except for the anaplastic, the other ones, epithelial has maybe the best outcome, but they're not, have, haven't really been associated with changes in outcome. Wilms tumor and the cytogenetics, again, I'll talk briefly about that. So, um, cytogenic anomalies are associated with outcome. Loss of heterozygosity in these three sites um, have worse outcome. The DNA index, if it's the opposite uh, for, uh, than for uh, neuroblastoma. Uh, in, if you have a DNA index of 1.5, meaning you're hyperdiploid, you have, uh, you're associated with anaplasia, anaplasia and bad outcome. And there's also uh, P53 mutations uh, that is associated with anaplastic histology and worse outcome. And that's I'm going to show you here. So this is a survival curve um, with different types of uh, tumors. So these are tumors on the red that have normal uh, heterozygosity. And when you lose it, if you lose one, two, or both, your uh, outcome gets worse. Uh, that's all uh, tumors. And this is for advanced stage. And interestingly, you need both losses to do even worse. And again, if you look at the uh, x-axis or y-axis here, sorry, you can see it's, I'd say, not as bad as neuroblastoma, but it goes down to 65% survival. Uh, the Wilms tumors do actually much better, or the patients with Wilms tumors do actually much better than patients suffering from neuroblastoma. How do they present? So when you have a, a young boy in, in your, or a girl in your clinic, uh, they look usually healthy. They have a, either an asymptomatic mass, so big abdomen, and parents uh, notice it but didn't really see it still. They can come also less frequently with pain, sometimes a fever, not eating well. Some, if you have a tumor invading the collecting system, can have gross hematuria, hypertension, left varicocele, if you have a left tumor that's compressing your uh, venous return from your testicle, always has to be worked up for an abdominal mass. Um, and then you can have an acute abdomen if 
the tumor ruptures into, into the abdomen and obviously distension, pain, and then bleeding. That's how they look. This is one on the operating table. Uh, obviously, it's a left side because we mark it, but the big bulge, and it's not as impressive on that side, but when you look here, you would say, oh, how did the parents not see that? And sometimes they can either bleed and suddenly expand fast, or just uh, they see their kid every day, so they might not notice it to grow. Uh, another little boy who you can see on the side here again, a big tumor that's bulging out. And they, can, they usually get um, diagnosed uh, during a, a well child check visit. And so uh, palpate the abdomen, but if you feel a mass, don't press too hard, because you can actually <laughs> rupture them. You can actually rupture them. So again, how do we work them up? Full history and physical. And then we start with an abdominal ultrasound. Again, no radiation and can be a good uh, start. You see a, a mass and then uh, the surgeon will always want to know, are the vessels patent and how is the tumor uh, related to the inferior vena cava? And then we need to uh, basically stage these patients and we get a uh, thoracic CT and an abdominal CT with contrast. So you see the mastitis, again, if there's any vessel involvement, because we need to know if we can resect them uh, safely or not. Uh, we look at the contralateral kidney. In the past, um, like 25 years ago, when uh, Wilms tumors were resected, you always had to look on the other side to see the contralateral kidney, because they obviously can have bilateral disease. Nowadays, with our uh, better CT scans, you can just look at the contralateral kidney with a CT and evaluate if they have or not bilateral disease. The CT is not very good at evaluating lymph nodes. That's why we need to do a lymph node dissection when we take these tumors out. And then uh, there's no way that on a CT scan you can tell what type of tumor, kidney tumor it is. It, most likely, statistically, it is a Wilms tumor, but it could be a clear cell uh, tumor. It could be a rhabdoid tumor. It could be anything else. But uh, obviously, Wilms tumors are more frequent, but you cannot predict the, um, the biology or the pathology. And that's how they can present. It's actually a patient from here, a very, very large abdominal tumor uh, compressing uh, some of the intestines. And you can see here, how do we know that it's a renal tumor, not the neuroblastoma? You have the claw sign, so it, it comes from the kidney. Uh, and this patient had obviously a big mass here, but also had mediastinal uh, met and pulmonary metastases. Again, here, a uh, similar view uh, was central in the mediastinum uh, and a big, big tumor in the belly. Uh, this tumor was not resected uh, primarily, but uh, we biopsied him uh, through the chest for, to make the diagnosis. Uh, so. Uh, the workup, we always want, as I said, a Doppler ultrasound of the IVC to see if there's any vascular invasion because that will be important for planning. As we don't know what the biology is, you need to, uh, if you suspect clear cell sarcoma or if you have clear cell sarcoma on the resectional biopsy, you need to do a bone scan. And if the uh, tumor comes back as rhabdoid, you need to do a brain MRI because these two tumors metastasize to either the bone or the brain, whereas Wilms tumors metastasize most frequently to uh, the chest. Again, um, Wilms tumor, so there was a Wilms tumor study group early in the children's oncology group, has a staging uh, system, and the European group has another staging uh, system. And so it can get confusing in the literature. What we did over here on this side of the pond, so basically stage one, limited to the kidney, totally resected. If you go further, there is some... Um, uh, capsule uh, rupture, or not rupture, but capsule invasion, but the tumor was resected. Stage three on, the, on that classification is if there's residual tumor uh, with positive margins or tumor spillage at resection, uh, or if you did a biopsy and spilled some tumors, uh, or with intra-abdominal lymph nodes, that's a stage three. And then obviously stage four with most of the tumors, it's a metastatic tumor. There's a, an additional stage, stage five, where of bilateral uh, renal involvement, and that's a, a specific subgroup that I will talk about. Um, what's also important to know is the COG staging is pre-treatment. The SIOP uh, staging is 
pre but also post chemotherapy staging. And um, for our staging, I'd say uh, it's important uh, for local treatment stage three, get radiation to uh, the flank and the abdomen. Uh, whereas stage two, I'd say only get flank radiation, uh, which makes a big difference. Again, risk stratification. So a uh, little more simple uh, today, but maybe not in the future. Uh, you have favorable histology versus unfavorable histology. And the unfavorable histology is the anaplastic tumors, the clear cell sarcomas, and the rhabdoid tumors. They're much more aggressive than the, I'd say, cl classic Wilms tumor. Loss of heterozygosity, as I showed you earlier, affects survival, especially if you have both loci that lost, lost their heterozygosity. They do worse. Stage is obviously directly correlated with outcome and uh, response to chemotherapy, but that's only has, that has been looked at in the PSYOP group. The better you respond, the better the outcome. And we have two low and high risk classification or classes, whereas the European have three. I'm a surgeon, so I'm just going to brief, talk briefly about what to do. So when we resect these tumors, um, you might be surprised of our size of the incision. It's usually big, but you need exposure because we need to see the vessels. We need to get the tumor out as safely as we can because if there's tumor rupture, it affects directly the stage and obviously the outcome. We make usually either a big incision on the side or some uh, do a thoracoabdominal incision in the back to have good vascular exposure. So uh, the parents are usually... They always ask us, how big is, going to, is the incision going to be? And, well, it's going to be as big to be safe. Um, the size of the tumor does not really uh, prevent us from resecting them. Uh, what will uh, prevent us is if there is vascular involvement uh, and we have to, uh, we are worried that we won't, have, won't be able to get all the tumor out. So a big tumor does not really prevent us from cutting it out if it doesn't involve uh, vital structures. Sorry. Um, when we are in the abdomen to take them out, we always do uh, an evaluation to see if there's local spread, if there's any peritoneal involvement, if there's liver involvement, and then we mobilize the colon and the whole mesentery to actually get exposure of the tumor uh, and then uh, get the vessels uh, controlled and uh, see if there's any intravascular spread, and that's why we need the uh, Doppler ultrasound to see if, this, if there's any... Uh, thrombus and tumor thrombus in the, in the, in the vessels. And that will, uh, if there is, the, the, the surgery is a little more complicated because we have to go taking, uh, fishing for them and taking them out. And then uh, for every person who has operated on the kidney, we have to be really careful about the superior mesenteric artery because it hides behind uh, that big tumor. And... Uh, there are cases reported where the uh, superior mesenteric artery was clamped and transected, and uh, it's usually a, a catastrophe because your bowel is not perfused anymore after that. So that's the uh, same uh, little patient that I showed you, um, the third one, the third picture on the operating table. So what we, that's the colon that's pushed up by this big thing down here. And uh, what we did is we pushed everything aside, and that's that tumor that involves the whole kidney. So we do a full nephrectomy uh, on that side, immobilize everything and take it out. And here, basically, that's somewhat normal kidney on the upper pole, and this is the tumor, and that's the uh, ureter uh, where it's holding up there. So the goals for our part is to uh, resect the tumor without rupture. We do lymph node sampling because that's part of the staging, and uh, we, don't, we try not to biopsy because that upgrades uh, or upstages, sorry, uh, the tumor to a stage three, which involves full abdominal radiation. When do we treat before doing surgery? So meaning chemotherapy. So if you have only one kidney and you want to try to preserve as much kidney and you do a nephron-sparing nephrectomy, um, we would uh, treat preoperatively to try to shrink the tumor and keep healthy kidney. If you have a stage five, meaning bilateral tumors, you want to treat before resection. If there is um, a huge tumor thrombus that goes all the way up behind uh, the liver in the IVC towards the heart, 
I think it's hard to go fishing up there, and so uh, we have to treat to try to shrink that tumor. Or as on our patient, the picture I showed you on the CAT scan, you have respiratory distress because of the metastatic burden. You would treat uh, before just because it's unlikely to be safe to put a patient asleep with that much tumor burden to take a big tumor out of the abdomen. We would still resect the tumor if we can with pulmonary metastasis for diagnosis and taking tumor out. But if there's a lot of metastasis in the chest, we would treat first. And then, um, again, if there's involvement of other organs that would need to be potentially resected, then we would obviously treat because you want to keep uh, the vital organs in place. Uh, again, size is not the contraindication to us doing a primary section and a nephrectomy. What can happen during surgery? So, um, for your residents, uh, when you, you are on 5 West and you have a patient who underwent a surgery in the, in the abdomen and they throw up green a couple days later, always be aware of working in the retroperitoneum can cause intussusception. And so when you have a patient who had a big abdominal or retroperitoneal surgery and uh, they have signs of obstruction, think about a bowel intussusception. Exactly the mechanism, I don't know, but it has been described. So intussusception is one of the complications. Then extensive intraoperative hemorrhage. These tumors are very well vascularized, and so they can bleed when we resect them. Wound infection is low. And then uh, vascular injury, again, I mentioned the SMA when we resect them. Um, advanced stage is associated with surgical complication. Intravascular extension, because we have to open the vessels, is also associated with bleeding. And then uh, if you have to cut other things out, obviously yes, the risk is higher. Now talking about um, chemotherapy, and again, I'm not an oncologist, but you have all these different regimens that uh, are used for different stages, and I'm not going to go into details, but the, it's based on vinicristine and actinomycin. And to uh, make a long story short, it's basically the, the higher the stage, the more aggressive the regimen. And as I mentioned in the before, like if you have fable histology, uh, but uh, without the heterozygosity, you have a lighter. But if you have anaplastic tumors, you use much more aggressive chemotherapy plus minus radiation therapy for uh, stage three. Uh, for stage two, you radiate the flank. For stage three, we usually radiate the flank and the, uh, the abdomen. Again, uh, it's pretty complex, and so that's basically you intensify therapy depending on risk factors and stage. Again, for radiation, uh, if you have anaplasia, you would do flank radiation even for stage one or less of het loss of heterozygosity. And again, that will show more and more in when we talk more about risks versus stage. Uh, stage three with favorable histology and no tumor spillage, flank radiation. If there is tumor spillage or abdominal contamination, uh, you do the full abdominal radiation, which has, again, its complications. And then stage four, if you have liver meds, you radiate the liver, pulmonary metastasis, if there's no evidence on chemo, after chemo of any lung metastasis, no radiation. If there is any, I think we go to full uh, lung uh, radiation. Survival. So this, I think, is much better news than for neuroblastoma. So stage one, you have overall, uh, I think it's four-year survival, 98.7%. Uh, and the worst uh, for stage four, for favorable histology, uh, five year or four-year survival of 89%. Remember, neuroblastoma, it was 30%. Now, where biology comes into direct uh, uh, play here, when you have endoplasia, obviously the numbers are worse. And so metastatic tumors with endoplasia, you're almost as bad as um, a neuroblastoma. Stage five is with bilateral involvement. It's slightly better, and again, this is a subgroup of patients that usually are syndromic and uh, have a little different behavior. So just to put that on curves, this is stage one um, overall survival, uh, but uh, with anaplasia. This is stage two, three, and four with anaplasia, and you can see that it drops uh, significantly. Uh, and then stage five, interestingly, 
is little better than stage four, um, with, but still 40% overall survival. Long-term complications, so our patients do better and better, uh, but I think we need to uh, look now in the long-term as well. So there's a big push for um, uh, long-term monitoring these patients and uh, prevent long-term complications. That's why some of the protocols have tried to decrease radiation or decrease the chemotherapy. And so when you take a kidney out, you want to make sure that you monitor the kidney function. Um, the renal insufficiency is related to uh, more syndromic patients, more bilateral tumors. Uh, our patients survive now, and some of them can actually uh, get pregnant. And so you want to make sure that you monitor them as far as their blood pressure. Uh, if they had uh, radiation to the abdomen, you have to be uh, cognizant of potential fetal malposition, uh, premature labor uh, that has been associated with your radiation in some reports. Um, again, the more you radiate, obviously, the decreased fertility. Um, there are programs in the country, and they're not used, I think, enough for um, banking of um, ovarian tissue. Uh, and I think they're done more at, at bigger centers. Uh, but I think it's something we have to talk with families about uh, as well um, uh, when we talk about chemotherapy. Um, secondary malignancies, uh, I think, is something that we have always to be aware of. Leukemias and other solid tumors, skin tumors, etc. cetera. Um, and then patients exposed to doxorubicin need to be monitored for CHF. If you get radiation to lungs, obviously there might be a component of restricted lung disease uh, that, again, has to be taken into account. And uh, these patients have to be followed uh, very long term uh, to make sure that we are, first of all, detect secondary malignancies, but also to make sure that uh, we monitor for long-term side effects of our uh, treatments. And then if you radiate the chest as well in girls, uh, monitor for their breast development because breast hypoplasia uh, can happen after radiation. Now for the uh, renal function. So these are the different uh, syndromes that we talked about. Um, uh, Dennis Drashwager um, and others. And so that's when only one kidney has been involved in this syndromic patient. But you can see that end-stage renal disease happens much more frequently if you are syndromic than if you're not. Uh, and then if you have bilateral kidney involvement years after diagnosis in bilateral tumors, uh, even though most of these tumors are treated with sparing nephrectomies and you want to keep the healthy um, um, uh, uh, parenchyme, they get up to, like, in Dennis Drash, uh, sorry, up to 80% at 15 years of uh, renal failure. So you always have to think of these patients, well, they might need a renal transplant in the future if they are in full remission. So for women's tumors, um, it's the second, again, most common abdominal tumor in children. Um, they do much, much, much better than uh, neuroblastoma, and so that's to end up on the good news today. Um, they have a survival up to 96% in, again, uh, good or favorable histology and uh, early stages. Uh, biology is, again, affects directly survival. If you have anaplasia, if you have loss of heterozygosity, uh, our patients do uh, not as well as the ones who don't have that. And um, again, surgeons are narcissists, so I think we're part of the treatment plan, and so when we can get full excision of uh, early-stage tumor, I think it, that's what helps the patient as much as chemo, and I think you get local oncological control importance of uh, careful uh, intervention to prevent tumor rupture and do a full uh, lymph node uh, sampling is very important uh, in that to appropriately stage and prevent radiation to the abdomen as much as possible. And again, long-term follow-up of these patients and uh, their secondary long-term effects of their treatment is imp important to uh, keep good survival and prevent or at least detect secondary malignancies and complications that happen after our treatments. Questions? So, 
evidence is for how successful it's been, and then whether antibody therapy would be something, an approach for realms, although the survival is so good, I don't know that you're... So the, the immunotherapy? So for neuroblastoma, it's actually in stage four it's used, uh, and it improves survival a little bit, yes. For Wilms, I don't know of any uh, protocols right now uh, that uses immunotherapy yet. And again, the Wilms tumors are so, there are so multiple types that I think we'll have to much, do much more progress in defining each subtype much better. Like we call them Wilms, but I think an anaplastic Wilms tumor is very different from a well different or well different on a favorable histology uh, worms tumor. So, but I think yes, immunotherapy might be the future. But it's I don't know, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years. Next week we're in auditorium H. H G over the new building. Let's see that.